Welcome back to the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is episode 110. My name is Rob Woods, and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising, who wants ideas and maybe a dose of encouragement to help you raise more money and really enjoy your job. This week, we're looking at fundraising through trusts and foundations, as I'm interviewing a really experienced fundraiser named Neela Jane Stansfield, who's the author of an excellent new book called Grants Fundraising, published by the Directory of Social Change. Neela Jane has more than 15 years experience as a fundraiser, working across the international development, health and education sectors, and for a range of charities, including UNICEF UK, Marie Curie, and the Stroke Association. Central to Neela Jane's philosophy is the importance of working hard to build strong relationships with funders. And because this is sometimes easier said than done, this was an important theme running throughout our conversation. I hope you find it helpful. Neela Jane, how are you? I am well, thank you, Rob. How are you? I'm extremely well, thank you. Thank you so much for making time for this interview. I know you've been on maternity leave for quite a while. How old's the little one now? The youngest what he is, what's he now, five and a half months, nearly six months. Yeah, so very sleep deprived, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, he's very sweet. He's very cute, which makes up for the lack of sleep. Yeah, well, well done. <laughs> also well done for managing to write a book and publish a book uh, while you were busy juggling lots of other things, in, including pregnancy. <laughs> I've got this wonderful book you wrote called Grants Fundraising in my hand. I so enjoyed it. And uh, there's just so many good tips and ideas in there, little examples to help fundraisers, especially people who do, in particular, trusts and foundations fundraising. And I was so keen to talk to you to see if you might share some of those with the listeners to the podcast. Just before we get into those ideas, maybe it would help our listeners to get a tiny bit of the, the background and the context. So you've been working in fundraising for more than 15 years, I think. Yes. Could you give us a brief snapshot? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, 15 years, cranky. Oof, um, yeah, well, I, I just I mean, I fell into fundraising like lots of us probably do, I think. I'm not sure I know anyone that set out to become a fundraiser intentionally. Um, but yeah, about 15 years ago, I just wanted to work in the charity sector and do you know, something good and, and meaningful with my life. And, and trust fundraising was the first job that I got. And actually, I remember getting the interview and not actually knowing what trust fundraising even was. But thankfully, they gave me the job. Miraculously. Um, and I just loved it because trust fundraising is, is this lovely combination of being immersed in two worlds. You're really immersed in the world of philanthropy and grant making and the psychology and motivation of what makes someone give money away. And at the same time, you have to be so immersed in the world of the projects and programs of your charity. Funders like grant makers want that level of detail. You know, they're really heavily into the project. And the, and the programmatic stuff so you you're really involved in your own charity and, and the program stuff and you're also really involved in the, the funder and you're kind of the middle person between these two two worlds and I love that about it then and, and I still I still love that about it now yeah it's been great to work for just a range of different charities over the years um, international domestic and in a few different countries and more recently consulting and working with a range of different clients and training and and different fundraising strategic projects. Yeah, and it is really interesting that you've got experience both within the charity at the front end, making those results happen, but also coaching and training people. And in terms of getting straight into it, because this winter, I think fundraising is going to be as tough as it 
ever has been for many fundraisers. There are certain pressures, aren't there, that make this really quite difficult and certain pitfalls that, uh, if you're not careful, really do catch charities out. What do you think a couple of the, the biggest ones are? Yes, absolutely. I think you're right. And, and the, the trouble in this area of fundraising is that there's a lot of internal pressure on trust fundraisers. And you're right, when things sort of hit the fan, proverbially, it, it tends to be the trust fundraising that get a lot of the pressure because it, it can be seen as quite a quick win area. So when, you know, at the moment we've got economic turmoil, we've got cost of living crisis, we've got climate change stuff, we're still in a pandemic malarkey. It's, there's a lot of stuff going on that means that service demand is higher than ever for charities. So therefore funding need is higher than ever, but economically, funds are probably going down and interest rates are you know, struggling. It's a whole myriad of, of events that put a lot of pressure on this particular area of, of funding. So the pressure is on, but the, the pitfall, as you say, is seeing trust fundraising as this quick win, when really it's the complete opposite. It's, it's not a short-term solution. Trust fundraising is a long-term game. <laughs> and if you want to do it well and you want to get uh, big, good grants and year-on-year uh, grants from funders and sustainable long-term partnerships and you need to have that longer longer vision um, and really that all comes down to seeing trust fundraising as being a relationship approach which I talk about all the time till I get blue in the face but I guess the opposite of that is is blanket appeals like taking a very direct marketing approach to trust fundraising so that might be maybe writing a beautiful application about a wonderful project and, and probably writing it really really well and that's great uh, but then leaving a little gap in your in your word document where you then use a mail merge just pop your little funders names in and you know print off 100 copies of the same proposal with different funders names plopped in and then you send it off in whatever form that is online or in the post or whatever now that's not an uncommon thing to do the caveat to that is that there can be a time and a place for that kind of thing occasionally but most of the time and if you want to really get success and be strategic and again long-term and sustainable with your trust income that's complete opposite of what you want to do you want to be actually spending your time really getting under the skin of who your funders are what they're all about what their motivations are who the key people are then planning your approach around that, taking time to plan that approach, and then spending time actually building a relationship with those key people and getting under that skin, and then, only then, developing your, your proposal and your application. So it's actually taking quite a bit of time um, to do all that stuff before you even put pen to paper, so to speak, or type a keyboard, before you even put an application in, rather than just quick win, let's farm out a bunch of applications and see if we get 2p back. Yeah, and... There's so many challenges, aren't there, to doing this well in practice because of the signals, not only the signals you might receive internally from your director or from the chief exec or from the trustees, and indeed from the signals that appear to be sent by the funder that appears not to want a relationship, that appears to want things to be more transactional and just do fill in this form at this time of year and fit your rationale into this box and so on. There are many, many things I think that in practice make it easier said than done. And that's one reason I really liked your book because it actually helps with some of the practicalities for how to do these yeah. desirable, but not always easy things. And yeah. one of the things really early on in the book that just really helped set it up, I thought, was just a nice idea to hold in mind was a, a metaphor for how to see the process if you would just share that I think it may well help some of our listeners 
Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, I wrote this book whilst I was pregnant. So I was probably actually just really hungry a lot of the time. There's a lot of food metaphors <laughs> throughout. But the, the main premise of the book is this sponge cake model, as I call it. And it's really this idea that there's three core elements to grants fundraising and to a grants, grant funding relationship. So if you imagine a Victoria sponge cake, nice and simple, just a big, thick, spongy layer at the bottom, your nice kind of jammy, creamy filling in the middle, and then another big, thick sponge layer on the top. And if you're a savoury person, you could just think of it as a cheese sandwich. Personally, I'm a sweet person, so um, whatever the sponge cake. But these three layers, and the premise is kind of that we do spend a lot of time talking about this middle jam layer, about the actual application itself. And I find, particularly as a trainer, that a lot of training courses around trust fundraising will just talk about bid writing and writing skills and job descriptions for trust fundraising often talk about writing rather than actually the other layers that are most actually probably more important um, than the actual application itself so that bottom layer of the sponge cake would be your funder cultivation that stuff like your research your approach planning and crucially your actual relationship building stuff so engaging whether it's meetings or phone calls whatever kind of form that takes but actually getting to know and engaging with a funder before you have that jammy layer of the actual application and then there's a whole other layer on top around um, sort of funder care. So that's thanking your grant management, but also crucially stewardship, which I think is quite separate from just your basic thanking. And, and the, the temptation can be, I think, in our um, area, just to kind of really focus on this middle layer. And what I'm trying to do with the book is to sort of say, actually, really good trust fundraising. And this is in my personal experience, what I've seen in, in lots of other charities I've worked with. The really great teams are the ones that have this holistic whole cake approach where you're looking at the, all of those layers, not just focusing on farming out applications. So and it's not to say that applications aren't important and that writing skills aren't important, but personally, I, I would rather recruit someone who's really good at the funder care and the stewardship stuff and maybe needs a bit of help with writing rather than hire someone that's just really good at writing and not the other two layers because actually it's the the sponge layers that get you the most money yes that makes absolute sense to me neela jane and i also know it doesn't always feel that easy in practice if you're looking at the website of a funder that appears not to be wanting to get to know people or have people get to know them in that way they appear not to want to come to our events and so on what do you think our listeners could do to find ways around that to coax and encourage any of those people who care about our issue to potentially get more involved with the work of our organization I think there's kind of three things there I think the first thing I would say is we can sometimes carry the perception that a that it's not actually that necessary um, and there, there will be times when you just pop in an application and you get you might get some money back and, and you haven't actually done any relationship building stuff. So you might think, well, do you know what? Actually, it's just not worth my time and energy. Sometimes it will work that way. The majority of the time, it won't. <laughs> and if anything, you're going to do more damage. And I think probably deep down, most of us know that, that really we should be doing this relationship building. So that's the first thing to say. I think anything about, well, I haven't really got the time or the capacity to be doing that stuff. If you actually want to have your long-term sustainable income growth, then we need to be prioritizing the relationship stuff is the first thing. Second thing, I think, yes, it can certainly seem like a lot of grant makers don't actually want us to be 
trying to build a relationship with them. I mean, that is a perception and it, it isn't reality in my experience. And if you talk to funders, I think they'll actually agree with you that the reason that they might come across being aloof or wanting that bit of distance is simply overwhelm. I mean, most grant makers, not all of them, but most of them are pretty overwhelmed with ineligible applications. Um, So they might not appear to welcome lots of interaction and lots of engagement. But I think it's helpful for us to think about why they are there. I mean, they exist to give money away. And people are on boards of foundations and trusts because they generally have some kind of emotional connection of some kind. Like they're doing it, you know, they don't get paid to be on a board. And these grant makers are made up of people who have brains and emotions and generally connections with other people. So if you can find a way of connecting with those people, working out who the right people are to connect with for a start, and then finding a way of connecting with them, then yeah, you're going to be breaking through that layer of I don't think they actually really want to know, because they do want to know. And a lot of foundations actually really strategic and, and really care a lot about the kind of social change that they actually want to enact and enable that's what they're there for so it's about finding ways of tapping into that and I think also it's just it's quite easy to maybe make it a bit of an excuse maybe perhaps as sort of thinking you know what it's not obvious that they want to get in touch they've not replied to my email I've sent them an email they're not replied they're not interested in in engaging I'm just going to send them an application but actually I would say we often need to try a little bit harder and be a little bit more strategic ourselves at finding finding the way to make that approach. It's not easy, um, but I will also say not everyone is doing that. So if you can find a way to be the charity that gets in there, you're going to stand out just because you made the effort because most people aren't bothering even to pick up the phone to a funder. And, and there's this kind of perception that goes around, that, oh, you know, trusts, they're really boring and stuffy and they don't want to go to events. And they don't want to talk to you on the phone and it's all really you know, just a dollar's dishwater and all very archaic. That is not true at all. It's, it's completely a perception. It's not reality. So I would say, yeah, forget, forget the, um, that sort of wrong way of thinking about them. Actually, funders want to be on, in on the action. That's what they're there for. They want to do, they're excited about stuff like you're excited about stuff and you can enable them to achieve their own charitable objectives. That's really exciting. You just need to find a way of connecting with the right person to do that. So here's a a stat that um, sort of surprises and doesn't surprise me, that three quarters of grants fundraisers in the UK will only make a phone call to a grant maker if they have a very specific query, even if the number is obvious on their website or on the charity regulator's website. So that's three quarters of fundraisers who aren't picking up the phone, even though they've got the phone number right in front of them. And I think only 16, this is from a survey that um, someone did last, just last year, 16, that's one six percent, um, will only pick up the phone um, to have a general, general chat before making an application. And 8% of fundraisers don't ever make phone calls at all <laughs> and this is just the telephone which is right in front of you you know and it's, it's very easy and straightforward so I think this sort of thing of, of um, this perception of oh no they don't want me to make the phone call is that it's probably more that we're not making the phone call and that's a really nice easy thing to do I spoke to a fabulous fundraiser um, called Andy uh, Andy Watts he um, took some amazing charities and he was telling me a story about a funder of theirs who used to give five thousand pounds year on year every year lovely lovely funder 
And then one day they picked up the phone and had an actual phone call conversation with this funder. The next grant was for £75,000. <laughs> so from 5 k to 75 k and that cost them a phone call. <laughs> That's just the power of interaction. And it's, I mean, I, I know it can be daunting and I feel this way myself, especially when you're working in an office and you've got other people around you and you feel like people are listening and there's just a thing that a lot of us have. We just feel a bit anxious picking up the phone because you don't know what you're going to get on the other end. But I would say just be persistent and, and don't be put off if you do get a bit of a, a frosty response. I remember when I was a, a young young whippersnapper for fundraiser and I remember picking up the phone to speak to a grant maker um and I got a very frosty response he, he obviously didn't want to talk to me uh he was something like you know, yes what do you want some kind of response um and I said well you know, I'm sorry to bother you I've noticed that your office is is just down the road from my office and I just I just wondered is this overlap between your foundation and and what we're doing as a charity I just wondered if I might be able to to meet you for a coffee or for lunch and, and just tell you a bit about what we're doing and immediately the tone of this gentleman completely changed. And I mean, I, maybe he's like me, he likes his food, but he, he, uh, he was like, well, there's a very good fish shop in Islington. And, and next thing I knew, we were meeting up for fish and chips. I've got a book on my bookshelf here in my house from that particular guy who, once we actually met and, and got talking, completely turned around, very warm, very engaged, became a, a funder to the charity. When I moved to another organisation, he actually started funding that charity as well. I've got this lovely book that he sent me for Christmas one time. Um, a lovely, warm relationship came about. And it was all based on a, what initially seemed like a bit of a frosty phone call. But people people give to people. You know, we know that, don't we? We, we, we talk about it in other areas of fundraising. And it's exactly the same in, in trust fundraising as well. Yeah, congratulations. I, I love that example. And literally this morning, I got a message from a brilliant fundraiser in our Bright Spot Members Club. Basically, that kind of story about how she picked up the phone to a former donor, got a coffee, and in the single coffee meeting, uh, that generous donor chose to fund, I think it was more than £26,000, basically um, funding the salary of, of a someone working in that charity and she said to me in the email I just if I hadn't picked up the phone it wouldn't have happened so yeah. as obvious as all of this is yeah a world of difference obvious. between us doing what we sort of deep down know if only we could yeah. take a deep breath and overcome those very understandable yeah fears that come to most of us I think about the phone sometimes yeah. hi it's Rob and I wanted to briefly let you know about our two flagship mastery programs in major donor and corporate partnerships fundraising. These six-month courses are a combination of masterclasses and one-to-one -one coaching to help fundraising professionals grow their confidence and their results. To give you a sense of the difference that these programs can make, here's what one fundraiser, Sarah Davies, said about how Major Gifts Mastery helped her. I've just finished Rob Wood's Major Gift Mastery program and it's been amazing. Um, the last six months of doing this course, I've had the most successful time in my job to date. I've had three or four major breakthroughs, um, my confidence has increased and it's no coincidence. I know this course has helped massively. Also, my colleague who works with me has been doing this course as well and she's had the best six months in her career as well. Again, major breakthroughs and I really encourage you, if you can find the budget within your organization to apply for this if you'd like to find out more go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services for now though let's get back to my conversation about grants fundraising and sponge cake 
with Neela Jane. Just a couple of other things I want to build on, because, uh, yeah, I know Andy. He's a brilliant fundraiser. I think episode 32 of our podcast and then episode 35, he came on and shared various examples. And one of the things he says in that episode is about his very first year when he joined, I think it was Sue Ryder. He and his colleagues were all about basically doing the kinds of ideas in your book, which is is focusing on the, the sponge cake, not just the jam. Mm, yeah. All this effort, hard work, but effort to develop relationship. And in one year, income from trusts and foundations went up by 349%. And I asked him, how much of that was, you know, because of your amazing skill with new applications to cold funders? He said, oh, none of that. That's as hard for us as, as for anyone else. Mm-hmm. All of that growth was because of these extra, going the extra mile to develop relationships with existing people who have already cared in the, at some point in the past and talk to them before an extra application, build re- more relationship before seeking further funding and things we do after donations massive growth from you know that that's as strong an endorsement as i've ever heard yeah to to do what they sort of know but sometimes don't get round to in terms of of getting to know people and understand them and where possible get more conversations yeah absolutely i think also i mean that's the fun stuff as well it's really it's really it's fun and and it's interesting it's exciting getting to understand someone's motivations and almost like this kind of the psychology of philanthropy this is where all that kind of the psychology stuff comes into it um it's yeah it's it's really satisfying exciting and it's very mutually beneficial i think that's part of it is that i think we can be resistant to the relationship building stuff because we have this perception that funders hold the money and we're kind of there with a little charity begging ball but it's not that I mean grant makers in particular of all the funders out there it should be easier than than any others really because they exist to give money away and they've got these charitable objectives of their own they've got their own boards that they need to report back to about how they've spent their money and the social change that they've enabled so actually they they need you they need us as charities as much as we need them it's really a mutual beneficial partnership thing and I think having that slight different perception in your mind makes it easier to pick up the phone I think, uh, rather than thinking of yourself as like a you know a salesperson, that you're actually enabling the grant maker to achieve their own goals and objectives, um, and do some really exciting, amazing social change. I mean, that's that's fabulous. It's exciting. You've got such you've got something amazing to offer someone when you pick up the phone. The other thing I remembered, uh, Andy said that again sounds like such an obvious tip, but his principle is that whenever we get any donation from anyone, large or small. Of course, there might be some more formal thanking procedures, but the first automatic thing you always do if you can possibly find any phone number is to make a thank you call first that day. That means he and his team are forever practicing the act of, if in doubt, reach for the phone on these easy calls. And your brain is used to knowing that actually this is relatively easy to do and it's no big deal. We've already talked about the power of getting a conversation or a coffee or any kind of meeting or any way of getting someone to come to our event. The, the value of that to our chances of future gifts is, is clearly high. Oh. Any thoughts on practically managing to do it 
albeit knowing that not all funders will always say yes. Yes. I mean, again, I think we're similar to the phone call. There can be this perception that the grant makers aren't interested in meetings or events. And that's just complete nonsense because it's people. And in my experience, that, that's just not the case. And, and similar to the phone calls, I think asking for meetings is hugely, hugely valuable. Or someone can, they can say no, but certainly ask to meet because if you can get face to face with someone yes at an event or, or in a face-to-face meeting just just you and them um then as you say like the likelihood of that bearing fruit in some form is, is vastly vastly high i mean it's like going on a date having a phone call versus actually going for a nice meal with someone you know and there's lots of analogies about dating that actually work quite nicely with grants fundraising as well as food so Yes, I think it's that kind of just being proactive, really. I mean, one thing that I've often found helpful is even just setting yourself some really loose key performance indicators, KPIs, around trying to increase the amount of interaction you have like this, whether it's I'm going to aim to, to make you know, 10 phone calls this month or whatever's kind of you know, reasonable or practical, or I'm going to try and get you know five face-to-face meetings this month, whether that's on Zoom or in person. We've got an event coming up, I'm going to, I'm going to invite, 12 you know whatever it is grant makers along sometimes just having some loose soft targets around that not to put pressure on but actually just helps motivate you and direct your activity onto more of these seemingly softer things rather than just farming out applications all the time one thing I really like about that is if there are no events at all in the next six months in the calendar which are appropriate to your type of funder it can help you have the conversation with your colleagues about finding the resource and the budget and the speaker to put something on Mm. this coming November or December. Mm. Otherwise, how on earth can we expect our next set of applications some months after that to be sent to anywhere that has been warmed up? Yeah. I mean, events is, is a, a massive tool belt of a, of a grants fundraiser. And sometimes that's an education piece internally because it doesn't seem like it's necessarily that relevant. It doesn't seem like it's sort of frontline. So cultivation events, for example, we had a funder when I was working at UNICEF who ended up giving to us on the back of a round table that we set up. We had no way of getting to this funder. So we set up this roundtable event which was basically getting them to come and join with us to talk about a particular issue and they were like yeah you know they're really passionate about that issue you know we're passionate about this issue let's come and talk about it and then that helped us to invite other people along also helped to open their address book to invite some of their contacts along who then became our contacts and then suddenly this seemingly kind of not essential event that we'd put on one morning there was no ask involved so it didn't seem like it was a direct fundraising event but actually it gave us access to this particular funder it also gave us access to a whole bunch of other potential funders that came along and then we're building relationships we're getting the face-to-face so that down the line we then can be putting in applications so some there are ways of of, of getting to people that might not seem that direct by using things like meetings and events and also the thing with meetings is you might go in asking for one thing and and come away with something something else I once went to a, a meeting with a funder um, looking for money and they were completely committed but then while we were there they said just come and have a look at our barn we had a look at this really fancy lovely barn which then became an event venue for us for a dinner that we held for some of their friends who, which again opened doors it was networks it was that peer-to-peer kind of activity that we want to be doing again with trusts not just with major donors kind of looking for networks and introductions to other people so you might be thinking you're going to, to talk about one thing but actually a meeting can enable something that you never would have known about if you hadn't actually got that 
face-to-face contact and got that relationship. Yes, that makes sense, Neela Jane. And I'm just conscious of time. This, my problem is I've got more questions I'd love to ask you, and I don't think we're going to fit them all into one episode. So if I may, let's finish today's conversation. And then if you don't mind coming back soon and doing another quick conversation for a second episode, then let's do that. And if in the meantime, anyone's desperate to find out more, then obviously they can go and get your excellent book called Grants Fundraising. But for now, Neela Jane, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you found our conversation helpful. If so, and you've not yet subscribed, please do that today so that you don't miss out on all the other episodes we've got coming up, including the follow-up episode with Neela Jane, where we explore a bunch of ideas for creating fabulous, inspiring stewardship. If you'd like to see a full transcript, as well as a link to Neela Jane's book and to the episode 32 that I mentioned with Andy Watts, go to the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. Now, if you're an individual fundraiser who recognises the amazing power of learning to help you do your job, or you're the leader of a team and you'd like to get your team access to a whole library of my best training films, as well as our live sessions each week with excellent fundraisers like Neela Jane, then do check out our learning and inspiration site, the Brightspot Members Club. You can find out more at brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. Or to find out more about discounts for teams, do send me a message via the Brightspot Fundraising website. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please take a moment to share it on with anyone you think who would find it helpful, so that we can help as many charities as possible with these ideas. Neela Jane and I are both on LinkedIn, and on Twitter I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thank you so much for listening today. Best of luck with your fundraising, and I look forward to sharing more ideas and examples with you very soon. <music>